0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Three Women Three Ways. Doctor Dorothy Edwards, welcome to Three Women Three Ways. Are you there?
0: I am. Great to be here. Great.
1: We had a little glitch, so we're starting about uh, uh, 57 seconds late here, and I apologize for that. Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us. I have heard so much about the Green Dot Violence Prevention Strategy, and I've heard of it from other guests, but uh, apparently this has been going on for some time. What caused you to start this campaign? And I presume that you are the, since you are the author of the strategy, um, that you started the whole organization, did you not?
0: I did. Um, I Green Dot, in fact, we're just getting ready to uh, celebrate our, our 10th anniversary uh, in some form or the other. It was about 10 years ago that we actually did our first Green Dot program. Um, at that time, uh, I was based at the University of Kentucky, and I was with the, the students there. And it... Really evolved interestingly um, out of out of failure um, my my whole career has been focused on the reduction of what I call power based personal violence but it 's sexual assault and dating and domestic violence and stalking and child abuse and kind of that category of violence and After uh, having done it for about a decade, um, I really had a chance to pause and kind of reflect and say, you know, how's it going? Do I have any evidence to suggest um, that as a result of my work, less people are actually getting hurt? And Honestly, I didn't have evidence to suggest that. I had, you know, lots of good anecdotes about a good talk or or a great event that lots of people came to or a pretty brochure, but there was no solid sense that anything was changing. And I think it wasn't just me. Um, I think in the field as a whole, we were kind of stuck in a rut in terms of not gaining the momentum we needed to gain to really see enough people engaged to reduce violence. So Green Dot was kind of, uh uh attempt to pivot and to go you know what's what's going wrong why why aren't our current strategies working and what can we be doing differently to um improve
1: okay so let's back up even more what led you to go into this kind of work why did you decide that this was the approach that needed to be taken to stop violence well
0: um, the 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 draw to the work, I think it came at a lot of levels, um, like many of us in the field. Um, part of the draw was my own experience when I was nineteen, I was a victim of. Um, victim of a rape. And obviously, that was that was formative uh, for me. Although at that time, I didn't think, no, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Certainly, it kind of got integrated into kind of my self-perceptions. And as my career began to develop and ideas of what I wanted to do, I'm sure that informed it. But it was also informed by the reality of this issue, the reality of like, if you look at lifetime prevalence of uh, issue of interpersonal violence uh, experienced by women. In this case, um, we look at lifetime prevalence um, at, at like one in three and you know, one in three women are going to experience one of these forms of violence in their lifetime. And when you say that number out loud, like one in three women in this country, right. will be beaten, stalked or raped. Like I, I was at this point where it's like, I don't know how to say that number out loud without going yeah. like, are you kidding me like without being kind of mortified and outraged and kind of going like if if as human beings that's not a line in the sand like that's not a place we go this isn't okay like
1: yeah I, 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 I don't know you know if if i can interrupt i mean you, we i have sure. a friend who has who recently had a a little girl and you look at this child and you think really Really, this wonderful, beautiful, amazing little child (laughs) is probably going to be abused. Right. Probably, you know, and, and it just shakes your soul when you look at it that way, doesn't it?
0: It does. And when you look at that time, 20 some odd years ago, it was still at a point where this was being largely ignored. It was swept under the carpets. No, it doesn't, he, you know, it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen at my university. It doesn't happen in my neighborhood. And so you kind of look around and go, how do those two things coexist? Like, how do we have these kinds of numbers and lack kind of the, the collective moral outrage? So I think as much of it that is attributed to my own experience at least that much is attributed to just my sense of i came to kind of define my humanity by i will not rest with this as an acceptable norm
1: yeah that's good that's good i applaud you for that and you were able to take that conviction and actually make something out of it
0: I did. After, um, and again, after a decade or so of failure, and when you say failure, when your goal is prevention, right, the prevention of this kind of violence, and you say failure, I I was always acutely connected to that failure is attached to a dramatic human cost, right? It's not like failure to make a profit, profit margin or failure to hit my work goals. Failure meant more people are hurt, right? Like more people's lives and their families' lives are kind of irreparably torn apart. And so that kind of sense of urgency kind of fueled the sense of there's got to be something better. And so, you know, when we, when we first started doing the work, we really did the work operating as if there were only two characters, a potential perpetrator and a potential victim, right? And so men were potential perpetrators, women were potential victims. And since those were the only two characters, We really, everything we developed, all of the prevention programming we developed had to be filtered through one of those lenses. And so our basic messaging to men for the first decade or so of this movement was don't be a perpetrator, right? Don't be a rapist. So it was about consent, and it was about no means no, and it was about don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And while it made, you know, initially kind of made intuitive sense, like if we just, you know, they don't, um, ultimately kind of the, the oversight there is that most men aren't perpetrators. And so if yes. in order to prevent violence, we have to engage men. But the only message we're giving men is don't be a rapist. And I'm not a rapist. Then I'm going to get defensive. Right. By the time I'm 18, 19, 20, 25. And or I ignore have, it. You know. Or ignore it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Ignore it altogether or go, or go, I'm not interested. Like whoever you think I am, I'm not that person. And, and I'm out. Right. And if you Mm -hmm. pivot and go, well, our second character is, is, potential victims and that's women. We didn't do much better with women because with that being our only lens, we basically said, just like we said to men, don't be a rapist. We said to women, don't get raped. And we called it risk reduction, right? Don't walk alone and don't drink from open containers and don't, and I have never met a woman who was happy with being characterized only as a potential victim, only as a potential part of the problem, as opposed to a part of the solution, right? It's so disempowering. So the pivot that I think has been really critical in this field is understanding that there's a third character and that that third character is, in fact, the bystander. And you say bystander, but you could say ally, you could say community member. The fact is every single man, woman, and child is actually a potential part of the solution. And the bystander lens allows us to give the exact same message to whoever we're in front of, which is as you're going through your daily life, if you happen to see – these kinds of high-risk situations. If we gave you realistic tools, would you be willing to do something about it? And suddenly that reframe has set us up in this field leading into an important next chapter um, that is based on positive, that's based on things that we can do, that's based on hope possibility and people's best intentions. And we are seeing that really begin to catch on in the field.
1: Wow. And, you know, one of the, oh gosh, I guess six months ago, eight months ago, we did a show on bystander intervention. Mm-hmm. And the term bystander intervention, to me, it almost sounds threatening. I'm a bystander. I see something and then I have to intervene. I don't know how to intervene. I, I could be putting mm-hmm. myself in danger. You know, that whole concept of bystander intervention
0: Yeah, kind of,
1: you know, it's scary.
0: It is. It is. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, that was our first misstep. I I felt like a major stride was a a, a major kind of important next um, paradigm was acknowledging the role of the bystander. And, And might I say, you know, Green Dot certainly didn't lead out on that. Programs like um, MP, uh, uh, MVP uh, Mentors in Violence Prevention are bringing in the bystander, Jackson Katz, Vicki There's other real leaders in the field that kind of pioneered uh, bystander intervention uh, into this particular field of uh, violence prevention. Um, however, that being said, when we, when we first pivoted to bystander intervention, we failed to recognize exactly what you just said. We fail to recognize that even good people, right, who see something and want to intervene can get stuck. They can hit up against barriers. And so we would go into a room and we would do some sort of inspirational talk and we'd say, so next time you see something, just step in and do the right thing, right? Like some kind of trite pep talk that assumed wanting to do it and being able to do it were the same thing. And what we had to realize is that all of us, given the right context, run up against barriers, right? So we have personal barriers. I am shy. I don't want to make a scene. I'm afraid, right? What if it turns on me? I don't want to be embarrassed. What if I call it wrong, right? What if I intervene and it's not what I thought it was and I'm going to look like an idiot, right?
1: Yeah, what, have, yeah what, if I, what if I'm just, you know, unsure, You know, we all can run across things where we think, oh, you know, that's not right. Well, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. You know. Exactly. And it
0: happens all the time, right? It happens all the time where I think it's actually an exception to the rule that we see something and it's so extreme that we know with 100% certainty, this is a bad thing and I got to do something. You know, most yeah. of the time when we notice something, our gut is kind of going, well, there's something, but I'm not sure, right? And there we are, yeah. which is one of the most common, one of the most common barriers uh, of the personal barriers. And the the other kind of set is around relationships, right? So. I don't want to look like a jerk in front of my friends. I don't want to be that guy that can't take a joke. I don't want to, you know, break the bro code. Or even, again, with adults, it's like, I don't want to be the squeaky wheel at my workplace. Or I don't want to, um, you know, be the one that can't go and just relax. Or in my family, we don't talk about these things, right? So we all have these barriers. And when we build strategies, What's important is that we recognize that barriers aren't going to go away. I can't make a person that's shy not be shy anymore. I can't make someone suddenly not care that they may be embarrassed, right? I can't change family norms with one good kind of talk. and so. When we build bystander intervention strategies, we have to not only acknowledge and legitimize barriers, but we also have to build strategies assuming those barriers are going to stay in place. And so people have come up with different ways to do that. Green Dot focuses on something that we call the three Ds, direct, delegate, and distract. And so we say, okay, you may see some situations that you go, you know what, I got this and I can do it directly. Right, So I can go up to the situation and say, hey, I think you need to take a breath. Or I can go up to the situation and, and check on someone. Is everything okay? And it, whatever my barriers are doesn't preclude me from doing something directly. You go into another situation. No, please go ahead.
1: Well, I was just thinking about many years ago when I was uh, pregnant with my second child, my first child at age two and a half, I, I was in a store standing in line to check out, and I could see. I was see, I was seeing that he was going to lose it, and I kept thinking, please let me buy these things before you lose it. You know, <laughs> let me get through yep, this before yep. you start, you know. And as I got about the third one from the, the checkout, I could see, nope, this is not going to last. And so I just you know grabbed his hand, and we headed out to the parking lot, and right in the middle of the road between the store door and the parking lot, he threw himself onto the ground. I was nine months pregnant with an 11 pound mm. baby. It was August, hot, miserable.
0: Yeah. And I'm
1: on my knees in the parking lot because I couldn't lift my first child. He was too heavy at that point for me to lift. And I'm on my knees on this hot pavement saying, Come on, you got to go over here. We have to go over here. Come on, yep, we'll deal with that later. You know, doing the thing. Right. Sweat dripping off of me, frustration, you know. And this woman came up to me wearing high heels and pantyhose, I'll never forget this, (laughs) you know, looking impeccable, and she had a piece of candy in her hand, and she Mm. said, oh, is somebody tired? And I'm sure, looking back on that, and I've thought of this many times over the years, I'm sure she felt that she was going to help me. But she's holding out this piece of candy to my two-and-a-half-year-old who's being absolutely recalcitrant. And I'm looking up at her from my hot knees, welded to this hot tar on the pavement, Mm. and Mm -hmm. I just looked at her and I went, get away. (laughs) 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 Get away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and I'm sure she, I mean, I've thought of it over the years, you know, because I thought, you are not giving a piece of candy to this child for behaving this way, you know.
0: And here I am stopping
1: traffic with this kid laying in the middle of the road, and it was just so from my perspective, it was just so inappropriate and arrogant, and I just wanted her to leave me alone. Right. From her perspective, I am sure she felt that she was helping me out. I've right. thought of that many times over the years when I have been in a position where I've thought, can I help this situation? Oh, I know. I've I've raised children. I know how to do, you know what I'm saying? Right. Do, right. As a bystander, just because we have a certain experience or we think something works doesn't mean it does and it doesn't mean it's welcome or appreciated or even right.
0: Yeah. And it's it's really interesting because what you just described is actually one of the barriers people talk about not just with children, although that comes up a lot, you know, um, but with uh, a, a situation at a bar where I think I'm going to intervene to this woman who I'm not quite sure how drunk she is and does she know him or not know him and if I intervene, will it be welcome? And same with domestic violence situations, right? Like is it going to be yeah. welcome? Is it wanted? Am I going to do the right thing? And so the question we have to ask ourselves is because for your situation, it could have literally been it, – it, it, the situation could have, that story could have been written very, very different, right? It could have been someone that really was at the edge of their patients and really, you know, was feeling out of control and feeling terrible and didn't know what to do. And someone coming in to intervene and create that distraction would have in fact been a welcome connection, a welcome intervention, right? And so what we say to bystanders is there's not going to be a one-to-one ratio. Every single thing you do, number one, isn't going to necessarily resolve the situation. And number two, may not be welcome. So what we have to do is we have to go as a society, as a community, as a university, however you define your community, um, where do we want to trend, right? Do we want to trend towards when we see something that our gut says, maybe I could help, we say, nope, mind your own business. Or do we want to trend towards
1: as a whole? It's what? And I think that's a typical reaction. No, just mind my own business. Exactly. Yeah. Right.
0: And what we know is, with that as the typical, we sustain norms of one in three across the life lifespan. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, if I were like, if I were talking to the bystander that finished uh, as they walked away from you, um, I would have said, "Don't be discouraged." Right? She didn't happen to need, right? She didn't happen to need, but that doesn't mean you did the wrong thing, right? She was okay. She had it under control. She felt. But maybe the the third one out, right? Maybe you and the next person she helps also is not interested. But then that third one, actually, that's going to keep that kid safe, right? Or that's going to help that woman feel a sense of connection and community, or that's going to help, right? And so it's, it's less about, I know what I'm about to do is going to to fix exactly what I want it to fix, and it's going to be welcome. And it's more about as we define our communities, we know that the current status quo results in one in three. So we got to try something different, right? And the theory of bystander intervention that there's, is that there's going to be a net gain. the more we follow our gut and go, I'm going to do my best to help here.
1: Mm-hmm. When is it not appropriate for a bystander to intervene in some way?
0: You know, we, there's, I, I'd love to give the answer to that, but what we, like when we do, in five words or less, a, please. <laughs> exactly. What we really do is, we really, it's about facilitating a process and helping people find their own answers. So once we go, okay, let's take a look at your barriers. Then the next step is going, okay, let's take a look at your options. You can do something direct, like the story you just gave. You can create a distraction, right? I spilled a drink. I need directions. Um, Hey, look, there's a scene over here. Oh, the cops are coming. Like, whatever it is, you can create a distraction to try to diffuse what's going on. Or the third one is you can delegate. You can get someone else to do it. Call the cops. Find his friends. Find her friends. Talk to a trusted minister, RA. Like, it just depends on your, your context. So direct, delegate, and distract. So we say, okay, you've got some barriers, it's okay that you have them. You're not a bad person. You've got lots of options, the three Ds, direct, delegate, distract. And so no matter what makes it hard for you, there's something you could realistically do. And then the last piece is exactly them dealing with the question you're asking, which is, where is my line, right? Like when do I kind of internally get set off? And what does it, what, what feels Within my own, again, experience and barriers, what feels like something realistic, accessible, not dangerous, hopefully, that I could be doing. And there's not a right answer. What we give, because, again, there's going to be sometimes we don't intervene where, by God, we should have. We could have made a difference. And there's going to be victims that 20 years later that I talk to almost every day that go, I was a victim, and there were four people that passed along the way that never did anything, right? Or there was a bunch of people that knew all along the way. And then there's stories like yours of people uh, intruded. It felt like an invasion of my privacy and didn't feel, you know, and, and, and wasn't welcome. And so they have to go into that context knowing those things. Like it's not a one-to-one ratio. It's not a guaranteed win. And so I don't have their answer. They got to go, the, the, the framework I give people is this. And I don't mean this in kind of a coercive way. I mean it very kind of matter of fact. When you're looking at a situation, if it were someone that you cared about in that situation, would you want someone to at least check in? And if we use that as our threshold, right, then I think as a community, we're going to be trending in the direction we want to be trending in. Right, so even if we took your story, the story you just gave, the story you just gave, if it were a friend of yours a daughter of yours that was nine months pregnant on her knees in the middle of the street with a screaming child, would you go, I wouldn't want anyone to check into that?
1: Well, I think for me it was less that she was coming over to check. She wasn't really, I, I think in her mind she was supporting me. In my mind, I'm going, you're offering a piece of candy to my two-and-a-half-year-old for behavior that's deplorable. I can't allow that. Right. So to me, it was not her motivation. It was her methodology that was not helpful. And then, of course, my two-and-a-half-year-old sees that I'm sending away the piece of candy so that That everything is even worse, you know. (laughs) And so I guess... My question really is: is that we may all have the desire to be helpful, but how do we know we really are? Yeah, and not just making it worse.
0: Right. Yeah, we don't. We don't. Again, it's kind of going big picture. Would we rather? Yeah. I would rather. I my personal philosophy is: I would rather. Um, I would rather answer for trying to do something that didn't work out how I wanted Mm than walking away from something that could, that, that I could have been a part of. Like when I choose, and this is a personal thing. When I go to sleep at night, I would rather answer for, I tried to give this lady a piece of candy, but it it clearly wasn't the right thing to do rather than I walked away from this lady. When my gut said, I should try to help.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. So I'm trying to get a feel for green dot. So green dot Uh is all about helping the bystander.
0: It is. Green Dot itself is, uh, the language of Green Dot is, is, is just a metaphor. And so what we do is we ask people to um, to, to try to conceptualize and create a shared kind of obtainable, uh, obtainable vision. So we ask people to imagine a map um, of their community. And we've all seen the maps where like a, um, uh, a an epidemic is spreading. So you see a couple of cases and then suddenly – the map kind of lights up and the red dots spread everywhere. So everyone kind of has that mental image. And so we ask them to kind of take that image and imagine a map of their community, however they define it. And imagine a bunch of single red dots on the map. And every single red dot uh, is one moment in time where someone makes the choice to harm another person, right? So a red dot is, you know, someone raising their hand to the partner. A red dot is the single choice to have sex without consent. A red dot is someone using their voice for four, five, six minutes, their words to uh, humiliate or to coerce or to, to intimidate in some way. And that this kind of violence isn't kind of a, a solid tumor-like mass that we can just kind of cut out and remove. It's a bunch of single choices. It's a bunch of single moments that add up to numbers like one and three. So here's this map, and it's got all of these single red dots representing these single choices. And what we say is imagine now dropping a single green dot into the middle of that map. And a single green dot is, again, just one choice someone makes to try to make it less likely the next red dot gets in the map. So it's the, hey, are you okay? It's, hey, I need directions. It's the talking to the friend or family. It's the single... Teeny tiny choices that when they add up become something bigger. And the punchline of the metaphor is very simple when there are more green dots than red, the violence comes down. When the green dots begin to outnumber and displace, the violence comes down. And whether you like the metaphor or not, this is not just a solution, it's the only solution. Because numbers like one and three mean we've got a culture-wide problem. And culture by definition is the sum total of a lot of people's choices. And so it's not going to be one funding stream or one policy, right, or one program that's going to change it. It's going to be when a bunch of individuals each say, I will do my single green dot. I will do my single intervention. When I happen to pass this in my life, I will pick one of the D's and I will do something. So that's kind of the, the, the metaphor. The second piece that we haven't touched on yet about green dot, everything we've been talking about so far is reactive, right? I see something yes. that I, I perceive to be high risk and I do something. But the reality is um, with this kind of violence, if we stay in reactive mode, we will always be in reactive mode, right? If we just keep waiting for the next red dot, the next red dot will always come. And so well,
1: it's much... almost like a vigilante outlook.
0: Say more. What do you mean?
1: Um, it, it, like um, I, I'm going to look for a transgression so that I can act upon that transgression. If you stay in yeah. that in that singular mode, does that make yeah. sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It and that's, sense. that's not necessarily an ideal standpoint for violence prevention, I wouldn't think. I mean, it certainly might be a component of it, but not necessarily the. Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, but ultimately, but ultimately, we want to get out. In front of it. Ultimately, we want to create communities where it's less and less likely the red dot ever emerges to react to to begin with. Right. And so what we talk about is these, these things called proactive green dots. And basically proactive green dots are about setting norms. And the two norms we want to set are this kind of violence will not be tolerated. Number one. And number two, in this community, everyone is expected to do their part. Right. Like everyone's expected to contribute to community safety. And so what we kind of say to people is, you know, how, how do you establish those norms? Like if if the next person in your community came in through you and your church group or you and your colleagues or you and your friends, how would they learn those two norms? And it's everything. It's, it's how people get to know us in general. It's the conversations we have, right? Like, hey, I just heard this thing on the radio uh, about – Green Dot. Let me tell you some, something about it, right? It's what we post on yeah. Facebook. You know, I post a, a link to a cool bystander story, or I like someone else's link to a cool bystander story. It's a pin I wear from a local agency. It's a sermon I I give from the pulpit, right? It's a bumper sticker I have on my car. And so the idea is, what are single teeny tiny choices? Like for most of us, this isn't their full-time job, right? It's not Maybe not even as their, their particular issue of passion. But are there one or two things that, again, when they add up, people in the community would know, oh, oh, in this community, this really is a value, this really matters. And that's the proactive piece of it.
1: Okay. To me, what you're describing is the way we used to be. Or am I just, you know, I grew up in rural Ohio, and it has occurred to me over the years that whereas, hmm, let me come up with another story. My father's father, uh, now my father would have been 100 years old this year, so this was back in, you know, the the 1900s, uh, the early 1900s. My father's father was walking down a small town street with his father, and his father started to beat him. Neighbors were in a wagon, and they went down the street. They saw this. The man in the wagon stopped the wagon, went over to my, father and his, my grandfather and his father, and said, you have to stop this. You don't deserve to have this boy. He picked up my grandfather, put him in his wagon, and took him to his house, and he stayed there. He lived there.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. Well, of course, we could never do anything like that now. Hi. However now we would call the authorities, there would be an investigation, there would be social workers, there would be whatever. But back then it was a simpler time, and this man said, no, this man is beating his boy, he doesn't deserve to have his boy, I'm taking his boy, boom. And my Mm -hmm, mm grandfather had a good life living there. Um, Well, Mm -hmm. you know, clearly that's not the way, you know, I mean there's pros and cons to that as well, you know. But back then it was simpler. I see something wrong, I can correct this, boom, it's done. And then it seemed to me that we evolved into when I was, you know, my my children, I mean, none of us would intercede with anything. We would just pick up the phone and call. I had another neighbor who was burning uh, some trash. She didn't know it was a no-burn time. She hadn't seen the notice. And rather than her neighbor coming over and saying, hey, did you know they have the burn ban on, she, and her saying no and putting her fire out, her neighbor called the fire department, and the next thing you know, my friend has three fire trucks in her yard because she's burning trash in a barrel in her backyard. Mm. So it seems to me we went from my grandfather's era when we could all just go take care of a problem and correct it without any authorities Mm -hmm. to an era when none of us is willing to even converse about it. We have to call authorities and make authorities take care of it. The description that you're giving me of Green Dot Campaign says, no, there has to be something in between. That we can as individuals do things, am I misinterpreting what you're saying
0: no i uh you're not at all, and i i mean there's there's two pieces of it yes, that is what we're saying is you know we're not going to say what to do, we're not going to say whether it's better to have a c- have that conversation or whether it's better to call on for us or whether it's better because you've got to know your context, you've got to know your limitations um how, how do we give people permission to to go back to that? In I I think you're right in a culture that that largely um, we get more and more messages about um, mind your own business, particularly around this this issue. Um, the reality is even back, um, even when we go back a generation or two, when it comes, while it may have been a simpler time um, in a lot of ways and more kind of good neighborly stuff around this issue specifically, it was more in the dark, for certainly more in the dark than it was now. There's certainly people weren't given permission to pay attention to the, the fight that's happening to the neighbors next door or acknowledge it in any way. It was certainly, mm-hmm. you know, women were men's property and what happened behind closed doors stayed in closed doors and sexual assault wasn't a thing. You know, those kinds of things. And so it's like it's trying to get the best of everything, right? It's trying to get the best of capturing some of the stories you're talking about, which is how do we look out for each other, you know, in those ways like um, like someone looked out for your, your grandfather. Um, and breaking some of the, the silence that did exist then around things like domestic violence and sexual assault.
1: Yeah, yeah I've talked with people who said, well, you know, when, when I was a child, nobody beat their wives. <laughs> right, <You know>? exactly. <laughs> When I was a kid, nobody did that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, really. <laughs> All Which of a, sudden, comes up a it lot, you know, started occurring 20 years ago. <laughs> right.
0: And so uh, that actually comes up some now that, as we've done, there's been an interesting shift from what you're talking about. Like no one, you know, no one ever talks about it. Uh, it's in the dark. to – okay, now people are talking about it and people say things like that, like, "Well, back in my day, it wasn't going on. And now there's an interesting thing because another kind of layer of this is one thing is acknowledging it's happening. Another thing is creating systems where victims feel comfortable reporting, right? Actually telling someone, um, uh, both formally and informally, law enforcement uh, as well. And it's interesting that as we do prevention well, so when Green Dot goes onto a campus or into a community, If they do it well, then you have a community that is talking positively about this issue, that is engaged in positive ways, talking about, you know, the the value of community safety and looking out for each other. And what ends up happening is that victims who have been silent for years, sometimes decades, they suddenly go, wait a minute. Maybe this is a community I could tell someone. Maybe I don't have to carry this by myself. And so what happens is after, after a, a good prevention program is launched, what people see is an actual initial spike in reporting. And what's been important for folks to understand during this transition is that spike in reporting doesn't mean there's a spike in actual incidents, right? It means actually a sign of success right, that we've created such a safe place that more victims are reporting, and if more victims report, obviously, there's then greater opportunity for accountability, right, and the more there's opportunity for enforcement and accountability, the more we we come at prevention um, in, an, in a whole other way as well.
1: Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but first, I've been sure. very recalcitrant. Re, re, I've been very, very um, negligent here. Our, it, we do have. I got emails from people. I know people are very interested in Green Dot campaign, including um, um, my old friend Barbara Paradiso, who said to say hello to you, by the way. And, hello. Um, <laughs> and uh, I need to give out the call-in number. I also have the chat room open. If you'd like to post a comment, I can, I can certainly um, um, pass that on or a question. But our call-in number is uh, uh, 646-378-0430, 646-378-0430. So give us a call, join our conversation, or say hello to Dr. Edwards, and we will continue. I'm uh, playing devil's advocate here for a minute. For one thing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm cautious about your approach because I'm going, okay, so we're going to train bystanders to intervene, and we're going to have a little cadre of vigilantes who think that somehow or other, single-handedly, they're going to be able to diffuse every situation with violence. But that's not really what you're saying, is it? Because in looking at your website and looking at your training opportunities, you know some of the things that, that you, you list there are just common sense things. Uh, I helped my friend get to a shelter. I helped. So when we're talking bystander intervention, we're really not talking about roll up your sleeves, get in there and solve this problem necessarily. We're talking about doing some of those things that most of us, from a human standpoint, would do. Am I right about that?
0: You're right about um, when you say bystander intervention, people do tend to go to where you went, right? That it's a it's a more imminently high risk situation, and I'm going to jump in the middle of it, and it's this high risk thing, and I'm going to do this big thing, right? And and I'll be a hero. Yeah. In, and I'll yeah. be a hero, right? And yeah, when what we do, what we train, in fact, is. What are the earliest possible warning signs? What are the things that, you know, someone uh, uh, um, just notices at a bar that someone is, uh, seems to just keep feeding someone lots and lots of drinks and uh, uh, seems to be kind of ignoring some body language around that, right? I don't know for sure something terrible is going to happen. I don't even know who they are. But you know what? My gut is going, eh. And so a common intervention there would be something as simple as going, hey, is everything all right? Are you all right? Do you know this person? Are things good? Do you need a ride? Did you come with someone? Like what we say is the most common, if we pay attention, the most common intervention by a thousand fold is going to be simply checking in. Simply going, do you need a ride? Simply going, do you need to take a breath? Simply going, even things like, I'm worried about you. I just wanted you to know you've been on my mind. If you ever need anything, these small moments, it is a rarity indeed that I have walked by a situation. That's been a five alarm situation where I was put myself going, Oh my word. Um, And the fact is, most of the time when people see something that extreme, um, they do call law enforcement or something like that. However, that being said, you know, the Stanford case was just all over the headlines. And that was a case where two fellas got off their bikes and did throw themselves into a situation. And thank the Lord they did. Right. Like, I think, gosh, I'm so glad. Even though we don't stand up there and advocate for throw yourself in harm's way. I got to be honest. I'm glad we live in a world where there are some heroes. You know Where there yes. was two folks willing to jump off those bikes and hurl themselves into a high risk situation, and again, we don 't stand up in the front of the room and do that. we talk about safety and we talk about getting back up and we talk about staying at a distance if it 's something that imminently high risk but yeah. the reality well is it doesn't have to be
1: that you know necessarily high risk to uh exactly. ratchet up the intervention. I saw a YouTube not too long ago where there were some women uh you know two women were visiting each other. They were in a bar and there was a man and a woman next to a young woman next to them and um that I don't know what brought their attention, but at some point the young woman with the man got up, went to the restroom and the other two women thought he just put something in her drink. And oh, so yeah, I instead saw that. of Did you see that one? So then then I they did. went, "Well, did he put I think he did." So when the girl came out of the restroom, they said, "We just saw him put something in your drink. Don't drink that." And they went right. to they took the drink to the bartender. And of course, the man was denying it, and I think they did call the police, and there it was in fact something yeah. in her drink. They analyzed it. Yeah. And boom, that's it. They just said, to the woman, you know, I think he, he put something in, don't drink that. If you want another drink, get it, you know, buy it yourself. Don't take, take that drink. And they averted right. a terrible situation. Um, so it they doesn't did. necessarily have to yeah. be throwing yourself in, in front of gunfire.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you
1: know? Exactly. Yeah. It's just Which is kind of I paying know,
0: attention. In that, in that role of devil's advocate, like that is not an uncommon thing. That there, are, there is certainly a group out there going, bystander intervention is not the way to go. And for a lot of different reasons. And honestly, I just ask back. I go, so, so I'm hearing you say training folks to intervene or presuming they can uh, intervene or be vigilantes or whatever language you're using. I'm not okay with that. But then it's like, well, say the alternative. Is the alternative – We don't want bystanders to intervene. We don't want bystanders to feel like they have options to help. We don't want bystanders to say, yep, something was in their drink. We don't want bystanders to, there's no, the alternative doesn't make sense and no one ever finishes that part of the sentence. They just say, Hey, that's not cool. That's not what this is about. Hey, this is about perpetrators. Hey, this is about women making better choices. Hey, this is about enforcement. And I go, well, finish that thought then. If you're, if you're anti- Bystander intervention, is is the rest of that sentence, I'm anti-bystanders intervening, right? Like, is that really the world we're wanting to live in where we would rather go, prevention is not going to include equipping people to help if they can? Like, it doesn't, that piece doesn't make sense. Don't you think,
1: though, it's the word, it's the word intervention. We associate the word intervention with something strong-armed and heavy-handed. Yeah. I think yeah. what you're describing and what I see on the website for Green Dot is not that strong, heavy handed thing. It's more of the keep your eyes open and be willing to say something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. Even in the field of bystander intervention, none of us love the word. Like, none of us love, because even people don't like bystander, because bystander kind of by definition means I. I stood by, right? And so we've, as a field, we've kind of gone, like, whoever can come up with a better phrase, because not only does it kind of conjure up the exact kind of framework you're talking about, but but it also conjures up you know, passivity—the word, the word bystander—and so folks have thrown up thing, thrown out things like upstander, and
1: I don't know. Um, so it's kind of like <laughs> let's kind of like tweak it so it sounds good, right? Uh, um, yeah. Yes, I yeah. agree
0: that the phrasing isn't the best—the best, uh, best phrasing—and that's just a, it's imperfect language right now.
1: Yeah, but what are you going to do? You know, um, but yeah, I, I agree with that, and I really see, you know, because I admit that, you know, when I first um was looking at, at the information and hearing about Green Dad, I thought, eh, bystander intervention, okay, so we're gonna teach everybody karate and give them whistles and send them out at night and right. you know, in match t shirts right. and you know uh that kind right. of thing and it kinda of gave me pause, not necessarily yeah. because of the risk of escalating a situation or the risk of danger for that bystander, but also because I've seen so much victim judgment, you know, judging against victims. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it's so easy to observe a little piece of something and decide that it's the victim's fault. She should have done this. She should have done that. She shouldn't have done this. She shouldn't have done that. And what she, you know. So I envisioned a a group of little semi-vigilantes out there, you know, making decisions and and, uh, escalating situations and just really helping to minimize a victim's self-power. That's my that was my initial thing, clearly that's yeah. not what we're talking about, is it?
0: No, and you know it's interesting the the um the role around the the um language and kind of the norms around victim blaming with this particular issue right the this idea of violence against women most typically does have that it's really conceptualized by that, right? What were the victims' choices that led to that, whether yeah. it's sexual assault or domestic violence and what I like about prevention why i have kind of enjoyed um the the framework of prevention is prevention by definition means there's not a victim and so i'm always kind of reframing towards instead of having to to sort out blame after the fact let's stop this stuff before it happens right let's get out in front of it so we never have to even get to that piece, and so that that pivot, like finally removing myself from the whole victim blaming argument, and going, you know what? I'm not even going to engage. I'm not even going to indulge that argument anymore. I'm going to focus my energy on stopping it, so we never even have to deal with that argument.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm feeling. I got to say, you know, when I when I was first. Um, when somebody first explained to me about Green Dot, I thought, "Well, that sounds okay," but then I had these reservations and some of the language threw me. But I think, what, based on our conversation, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable about it because basically, what you're saying is we're just going to be human beings again who care about other exactly. human beings. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And I like and you- no go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and other people do too. And you know, quite frankly, um, I take a lot of um, I take a lot of responsibility for how many folks I've alienated over the years. Like, again, <laughs> alienating men. Well, alienating men because they're potential, you know, just kind of assuming they're, they're only p- potential rapists, and alienating women because all you are is a potential victim, and arguing about every victim-blaming feminist kind of thing I could think of. Like, it was a real kind of push, pushing people away, adversarial kind of thing. And what you're talking about, that, the simplicity of this is just about good people behaving in good, kind ways and looking out for each other. And that's actually who most people are, right? And so reframing this, that I step into a room or I step into a space and I assume allyship, I assume best intention. And all Green Dot does is is, um, reinforce that, honor that, and then go, even good people find it hard to intervene. So let me give you some specific options, right? Let's talk about barriers realistically, and let's talk realistically about things you could do. But it is built on the simple premise of good people wanting to do the right thing. And that is why, in my personal opinion, um, Green Dot and other bystander programs have taken off like wildfire, because we're not convincing a population to do something they don't want to do. We're simply giving some tools for people to do what they've wanted all along. And that happens instantly right as soon as soon as someone said if my impulse all along has been to help and someone finally gives me the tool to do it then the journey is one step right I can instantly go oh I didn't know that was a possibility I'm going to try that and now I'm in I'm, I'm in action so I really appreciate kind of the simplicity um, of that reflection that you gave because it does capture the heart of of green dot
1: yeah, yeah, I, I and I'm sorry that I had that misconception when I when I started out, you know, looking at it. Um, but I, I I just I I'm very sensitive to victim blaming, and I just thought, oh my gosh, we're going to have all these people running around, you know, <laughs> um, and and making it a little bit worse for the victim. And um, yeah, but that's not. We have about 10 minutes left. Can you please tell me about the trainings that you do? I'm particularly interested in schools and and, uh, what kind of trainings does the program do?
0: Sure. Well, the Green Dot Dot organization really does two different things. One is we train on the Green Dot strategy, the the actual prevention program called Green Dot. And the second thing we do is more broad kind of consultation about building your own prevention program or, or, or shaping policy, those kinds of things. But in terms of the programmatic piece, um, like I referenced at the beginning, we started at the university, um, partly because that's where it worked, and partly because that's such a high-risk time for women uh, with sexual assault in particular. Um, and we have since, over the last decade, um, you know, worked our way backwards to um, high schools and middle schools, and we're finishing up highly in the K through three. And we've also gone in the other direction, where we now have a community training. And I'm really excited about the community training. We've been doing it for a couple of years now, because... When you train the surrounding community, when you train the churches and the bars and the parents and the Rotary Club and the small businesses, then when we do trainings in the schools – those trainings are strengthened because when I leave my health class where I sat through the prevention training, it doesn't just disappear. I then hear mom reference it because she had a training at work on the same thing. And I hear it from the pulpit because the preacher ties in something about brothers or sisters keeper. And then when I'm at the restaurant, I see a placemat that has little green dot activities, right? So it goes from, this was just a required training. I had to sit through in health class to, Oh wow, this is something that everyone kind of buys into anyway. So now we have kind of a lifespan Approach and programs that kind of coincide developmentally, and when folks want to when folks want to bring in the program, we're like a train the instructor model. So what we do is, for example, if a high school says we want to do Green Dot, um, we would work with them to kind of put together who's, who who are the best people to be trained um, uh, teachers, community partners, um, counselors, support staff, administrators. Like we put together who's going to be their training team, and we come in for four days. And for four days, we train them on um, the curriculum, right, the actual components of the curriculum, which are twofold. One is there's kind of an hour-long workshop that we want everyone to get. Like we want to give everyone in the school, faculty, staff, and students, um, teachers, uh, principals to get. It's an hour long. Um, and it talks about the green dot metaphor um, and then it talks about recognizing red dots and then it talks about the barriers and then it talks about the 3Ds and it talks about proactive. So all of the things we've talked about in the past hour, that's what the curriculum covers. And then there's a a second more extensive um, workshop that's actually four to six hours long. And that is a very targeted workshop. What we want there is we specifically have schools identify the most socially influential people. So it's actually out of a theory called diffusion of innovations, and they're called early adopters, but it's basically the popular kids, right, across different subgroups. And we go, we're going to actually pull them out and get them really trained in the skill set, trained to model these kinds of behaviors, trained to, to do proactive green dots, because what we know is watching some of the cool and popular kids actually do green dots, is going to have way more influence than some grown-up standing in front of the room doing it, right? And so sequentially, they go into a school, they train the adults in the school, right, because they really kind of are the, are the shell for the norms of setting what's okay, what's not okay. Then we train these socially influential kids, and then we train the, the general student population. So we go in for four days, we train on those two components of the curriculum, um, and then we train on things like, public speaking. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but it doesn't matter how good a program is if the person in front of the room isn't dynamic and authentic and a strong facilitator. So we actually spend some of those four days um, training on making sure they're effective in front of the room. Um, we also spend some of those time, uh, some of those, we spent a couple of hours on hope that this notion of there is such fatigue around this issue um, People get burned out, like, oh, another program, here comes another program, <laughs> haven't we yeah. been talking about this forever, this is, uh, mm-hmm. I've got too many other things to do, I've got real classes to teach, right, and so if, if, if the people who are implementing don't believe it can work, they are right. You know what I mean? Like, if they don't believe it can be done, that is going to become self-fulfilling. And so we spend time kind of dusting off the old hope. Like, we spend some time getting back to the sense of possibility and laying out the case for how it can be done and having people bring that hope to the room. So when they do go back to the school... We want to send them back on fire, right? And it's not just a pep talk. Again, it's what I like to call it: is research-informed hope. We go, let me lay this out for you. Like, this is how this is going to work. This is the research that already says it is working. This is the research that informs it. These are the ways that it's different from any other program you've ever done. And by the time we're done, and then we have them do some reflection. You know, when did you get fatigued? You know, what is the status of your hope? And then we've got, we, we get them to really immerse in it. So the four-day training has things around hope, around effective public speaking, around the actual um, curricular components, um, around what teachers and faculty and staff can be doing. Um, and then we send them back, and um, off they go. Uh, they go back, they prep, they learn the curriculum, they launch in their school. And we've got schools that have been doing it five, six, seven years um, to, to great
1: success. So, what kind of trainings do you offer for these peripheral people uh, the, the bystanders what What kind of a training what ty- types of resources are available for uh, people like me who who would just like to have this information
0: well there 's two things one is those are typically so like when we train the schools, um, they then would go in and train their their student body and so typically there 's two different things one is um, uh, lots of people like you would get brought, would get trained then through a community training. So we'd go in and we would train this coalition of folks that would probably be social service agencies, probably, you know, people like you, um, you know, business leaders, they would sit through the four day training, and then they would go out and train their community on the bystander training. We also do individual trainings um, where folks can come to us. So people just come in um, um, Apart, we don't go to their community. We hold a, a couple, two or three nationally that people come to us, and th- those tend to be um, uh, smaller groups and individuals that are interested in getting more information and interested in getting, uh, getting involved, okay. and organization-specific uh, trainings as well.
1: Okay, and for our listeners out there, how do they find out more about those community or school trainings?
0: Um, if they shoot off an email to info, I-N-F-O, info at live the green dot all one word live the green dot dot com um we can send them all sorts of information our website is in transition right now so for another couple of weeks it's the one that's um, up currently which that does post upcoming trainings um uh, but what's not posted on it, it posts upcoming national trainings, but what's not posted on there is all of the individual trainings we do. And so when there are folks, for example, like yourself that are interested in attending a training, what we very often do is identify one that's coming to their area and then invite them to come and kind of crash that one as well. So info at green dot dot com, um, Or if you look at our website, um, the current one that'll be up for another couple of weeks, it's, um, what is our website? I think it is livethegreen.com. i dot, dot I've com. got it
1: open here. Sounds right. So let me back it up. Um, okay. Well, for some reason, I, I don't have it open. Yeah, I it's livethegreen.com.
0: I did, live the, it's
1: now. Um, oh, wait a minute. Here we go. I can just click on that. There we go. And the website is www.livethegreen.com. com. Okay. Up. Okay. I've had a good time, and I've decided that I'm no longer calling, going to call people bystanders. I'm going to call them peripheral people. <laughs> nice.
0: Peripheral people. I'm pretty soon sure it'll just become PPs, you know, it'll just yes. get abbreviated more yes. and more.
1: Yes. So they're going to be peripheral awesome. people for me. And uh, next week, we are going to have uh, another speaker to talk about peripheral people, um, Alan Berkowitz, who has done some speaking and writing about making it safe for bystanders to speak up. So we'll see how that meshes with or conflicts with uh, the wonderful information you've shared with us, Dr. Edwards. I'd like to end my show with a quote, and I've got a couple today, but first of all, I want to say thank you so much to you, Dorothy Edwards, for coming on the show, sharing with us what the Green Dot is doing. And when I first contacted you, I said, you know, I've had several guests that have mentioned uh, the Green Dot campaign, and uh, I finally had to go, okay, what is this? I've got to have this lady on here. So thank you uh, for coming and joining us. I sure appreciate it.
0: It's been a great conversation.
1: Well, and, you know, feel free, again, for our listeners, too. You can just go to the website, and you can uh, access this show in in about 15, 20 minutes. It will show up in the archive list, and you can click on that. You can give the website to whoever you want, and they can click on it. So this information is out there, and it's out there forever. So make use of it. Thank you. Our quote for today is actually from John F. Kennedy. Peace is a daily, a weekly, a monthly process, gradually changing opinions, slowly eroding old barriers, quietly building new structures. And it seems to me that that is uh, the essence of what the Green Dot Campaign is doing, eroding those old barriers and quietly building those new structures so that we can all participate in creating a safe and peaceful society. Thank you, Dr. Edwards. Thank you, listeners. And please join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways.